They left me a little note to make sure I introduced myself and state the name of the workshop. I think it's for the audio cassettes. But this basically is a Christian philosophy of education, a Christian philosophy of education. Uh, I am Dr. Phil Fernandez, uh, the president of the Institute of Biblical Defense. Uh, basically, we deal with Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Uh, you might have heard of the Christian Research Institute with uh, Hank Hennegraaff. We're, we're the other guys. It's, it's, uh, and uh, so, uh, but basically, we deal with Christian apologetics. And uh, uh, today, what I'd like to talk about is the Christian philosophy of education. And uh, we're going to be dealing with the general philosophy of education. I think uh, you homeschoolers, my wife homeschooled our daughter. Uh, for most of her schooling, and uh, I think the homeschoolers are going to know more about the details than, than I would. You know, I've never done it myself. Uh, uh, at the same time, I want to just lay down the uh, basic uh, philosophy of Christian education, if you will. Uh, brief introduction, we need to answer three questions. Uh, first, what is philosophy? Secondly, what is education? And then third, what is philosophy of education? Uh, I tried to stay away from uh, technical def definitions here, try to simplify things as much as possible. And so uh, our definition, our working definition of philosophy will be the love or pursuit of wisdom. The love or pursuit of wisdom. Now, uh, if you know anything about the history of philosophy, it's almost the has been almost the antithesis of that. It seems that uh, man has uh, ran from wisdom at every uh, possible juncture, uh, but philosophy is the lover pursuit of wisdom. Uh, education, we're just going to define it as, as basically training others or teaching others, but basically it's, it's for purposes of life preparation. Now let me be clear on this. I'm not saying that therefore you You've given a kid a good education if you trained him to be an auto mechanic or a carpenter or that type of thing. I'm talking about the uh, the training necessary to be a good citizen, to live a good, wholesome life, and then to have uh, the uh, knowledge needed so that they can pursue that which they would want to pursue later on. That type of thing. I'm not opposed to woodshop in schools, but I don't I don't like when woodshop is the seems to be the primary thrust of schools rather than uh, educating people and, and we'll see why as we as we move on. So then to answer our question, what is the philosophy of education? It is basically the study of different philosophies or the study of different views of education. Now throughout the history throughout man's history there have basically been uh, two distinct uh, philosophies of education that are opposed to one another. Uh, the view that I hold to is the biblical view of education. It's also referred to as the Judeo-Christian view uh, because of the Jewish Old Testament and of course the Christian New Testament and Christians also accept the Old Testament as well. So the biblical view of education, I want to look at a, a few passages and spell that out to you and then see that there this is not the only view of education that there has been throughout the history uh, of mankind. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Uh, 
Proverbs 22 and verse 6. And that reads, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And it's, it's in the context of the parents raising their children. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. And that reads, uh, Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. Now God is speaking here. And lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and your grandchildren. So that uh, religious information that God had passed on to the Jewish people, they were to pass on to their children and to uh, their grandchildren. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6 and verse 4, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. I, I think for homeschoolers, this is pretty a pretty obvious point. It's, uh, we're kind of preaching to the choir right here that it's the parents' responsibility uh, to educate their children, okay? Especially when you come from a religious perspective, uh, such as I do, uh, from a Christian perspective, um, it's the parents' responsibility to educate their children. Uh, I don't, I don't know if, if, if you've looked into it. I would, I would think you have just by by being homeschoolers. I mean, there was one year when we were. My wife was homeschooling our daughter one year in this state where it was actually illegal. But we just decided, hey, this is the best that way, the best thing to do for our daughter. And then when they made it legal and they had certain ramifications, certain hoops for us to jump through that we could jump through, we jumped through those hoops. Um, you know, we had at one time have a, a, somebody teacher certified or at least two years of college that would oversee what we were doing or that type of thing. Um, but I did not like the education uh, system, the way things were being run. Um, but it's the parents' responsibility to educate uh, their children. Now, the scriptures also teach that non-believers should not educate our children. Look at, uh, if you have your Bibles there, look at Luke chapter 6. The Gospel of Luke chapter 6. And verses... 39 and 40. Jesus is speaking. It says, uh, And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Basically, when you teach someone, you're imparting some knowledge that you have and possibly even experiences that you have, and you're imparting that to another person, you're basically uh, reproducing yourself in another person. And so the Lord Jesus basically says, look, if a spiritually blind person teaches uh, another person that doesn't have this knowledge yet, so they're also blind in this particular area, uh, uh, the teacher is going to lead the pupil astray. And the better a student the student is, and the better the teacher the teacher is, the more likely that that student is going to be uh, uh, have the identical views uh, as the teacher in the end result. And uh, of course, if the person is spiritually blind, that's really not the 
really should not be the goal uh, of Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. <laughs> Becky Atkins. Okay, so long. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Uh, Paul says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to non-believers, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Obviously, you have two diametrically opposed worldviews here. Okay? Uh, I agree with uh, the late Christian thinker Gordon Clark, who uh, back in the 1930s was actually already saw the danger of the, of the federal government getting involved in education. And uh, uh, even as early as that, he was basically saying, in the government, in its attempt to be non-Christian, is going to, uh, the education system in its attempt to be non-Christian is going to become anti-Christian. Okay? You see, Christianity, a religion, pervades every aspect of life. So, if you try to remove all those aspects, you don't end up with a neutral position, you end up with a different religion, is what it amounts to. Okay? Um, and so, uh, the cross of Christ, the gospel message, the good news of salvation through the Lord Jesus alone, that's foolishness to the world. Okay? Uh, the most important event in the history of mankind is neither here nor there. From a, as far as the teacher is concerned, that is a non-Christian uh, teacher. First Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen, Paul says this: "But the natural man, in other words, the unsaved man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned." Basically, a non-believer is spiritually blind. He, he does not see God's truths. Uh, he does not see God's true interpretation of the world, and basically he's going to deliver to his students uh, a false interpretation uh, of the world. Okay? Um, it, it's an either-or situation. And then one more passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And Paul says this, but even if our gospel is veiled, even if our gospel is hid, uh, hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, that's Lucifer, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should, should uh, shine on them. And so he's basically, Paul's basically saying that non-believers are, Satan has kept them blinded. Uh, so that they do not see the light of Christ. They do not see the true gospel message. And again, you go back to what Christ said, if the blind lead the blind, uh, both teacher and student are going to fall into a ditch. And, uh, and therefore, you know, uh, the need uh, for Christian education. Now, that's the biblical view of education, that it's the parents' responsibility to educate their children and that uh, non-believers should not be the ones educating uh, our children. Um, Norman Geisler, a Christian philosopher, uh, I heard him speak in Seattle at one time, and he, he mentioned that he used to send his kids to, to the public schools, and then uh, uh, he was having a little informal debate with another uh, Bible college professor uh, because the other professor was opposed to that. And so the professor asked him, he said, well, do you think that uh, the apostles 
uh, who were Jewish would have sent their children to the Romans for an education. And Norman Geisler admitted, you know, he, he couldn't argue with that, so it was time to redo his budget and set aside some funds, and he took the expensive route, uh, the, the Christian school system, rather than homeschooling. Uh, but whatever the case, uh, the biblical view, uh, you're not going to have, you know, young Jewish boys and girls at the time of Christ going to the pagan Roman society and education system and asking them to train their children uh, in the uh, ways and ideas of uh, Greek pagan philosophy. Um, but there is another view, and I, I think one of the earliest proponents of it was Plato in the 4th century B.C. Uh, Plato believed uh, that the state should educate the children. Now, now we all hear about Plato's Republic. Uh, when I read Plato's Republic, Republic becomes a bad word for me. Now, the constitutional republic that we're supposed to have in this country and the, the, that we had when our founding fathers set this country up, uh, we're moving further and further away from that. Uh, liberty under law, that's, republic is a beautiful word there. But in, in, in Plato's view, you have these philosopher kings, if you will, these intellectual rulers uh, who are supposed to be the intellectually elite. And they know what's best for people. People don't know what's best for them. See, this is one of, the, one of the reasons why I'm opposed to the constant raising of taxes. It's not a monetary issue. Okay? It's a control issue. When you have a government who tells you, say, it says, hey, Phil Fernandez, we don't think you're smart enough to know how you should spend your money. You can't take care of yourself. We're going to take care of you. And the larger percentage of my income that our government takes from me and spends for me, the less control I have over the choices in my life. Uh, you can call America the land of the free, uh, but when you're taxing people, uh, you add all taxes, government, governmental taxes together, federal, state, local, um, the average American is paying somewhere between 40 and 60 percent of their income in taxes. How free is that? Um, is there such a thing as being half, half free? So uh, I think there's a problem there. But Plato had this kind of thinking. Um, and it's not an old way of thinking. I mean, you hear some politicians saying things like it takes a village to raise a child. Now, if they're talking about the extended family, grandma, grandpa, mom and dad, fine. But that's not what they're talking about. And uh, when they, their idea of a village is basically, it's more along the, the Marxist lines it's uh, society, but society is is uh, defined basically as the governing authorities, and so it's it's a lot closer to Big Brother uh, than it is to uh, you know the extended family. But in Plato's view, the state should educate the children. Uh, the state should also select the careers of its students. Uh, the, 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 these intellectuals would know best where these particular people would fit in society. Now, this guy's got some muscles, but he's got nothing upstairs. We'll make him build chariots or whatever, and, and this and that. This other guy agrees with me on everything, so he's going to be one of our future rulers, so we're going to send him all the way through our school and get him into government and have him rub, rub shoulders with some people in big places. Uh, but Plato believed that the state can produce 
uh, the ideal society. Okay, and that was his goal, and, and he thought that, uh, you know, uh, utopian dreams uh, have been around uh, since the dawn of civilization, but we have had the, you can look at one, you can look at it as a blessing or a curse, but we have had the opportunity to see uh, these utopian dreams uh, actually implemented and uh, you know, Soviet Union, Red China, uh, Hitler's Nazi Germany, and uh, so these man-made solutions to all our problems that government's going to come in there and they've only got your best interest at heart, just turn all the power, all the control over to them, and they're going to take good care of you. Uh, it has led to, I believe, over 120 million people slaughtered, innocent people slaughtered by their own governments during peacetime in this century alone. But you can add up all the people that have been killed in wars in the history of mankind, and you're not going to get a total that high. And, uh, and there are some people that are talking numbers, uh, population control fanatics that are talking about cutting the world's population by a few billion uh, in the next generation or so. And so hopefully they will not uh, find themselves in positions of power uh, to implement some of those ideas. But man-made uh, utopian dreams, uh, setting up an ideal society, man bringing peace to the planet, uh, through the state, uh, the government having all the answers. Uh, our generation has, has seen this type of thinking implemented and it's led to nothing but genocide. And I think that's, uh, you know, going into the last century, there were even many Christians who, who thought that man had grown up and we would no longer need war. And then came World War One, and then World War Two. You know, World War One was even called the, the war to end all wars. Um, now we've got that same kind of optimism going into the 21st century. And uh, in fact, I recently presented a paper before the Evangelical Theological Society at a regional meeting at Multnomah Bible College. And I argued that if Western culture doesn't turn back to the God of the Bible, uh, that the millions who were slaughtered by their governments in the 20th century is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, I'm not a pessimistic guy, and that's why I still try to persuade people and, and get our nation and Western culture to turn back to God. Uh, but if we don't, I think the consequences uh, are going to be uh, uh, terrifying, to say the least. Uh, the Reformation view, the view of the Reformers in the 16th century A.D., this is often misrepresented, by the way, in uh, books on philosophy of uh, education. Uh, reason being was because the, the Roman Catholic Church had controlled education uh, and it controlled the state as well as being a religious body. So the founding fathers, I mean the, the uh, reformers, when they broke from Rome uh, and, and you know Luther started Lutheranism, Calvin, Calvinism, uh, but they still had that idea of Rome and so you still had the church and the state kind of melded together. And so a, a lot of people will try to play them up as uh, the state uh, advocating the idea that the state should educate the children. But actually the reformers believe that the church should provide education not just for Christian children, but for all children. If an atheist mom and dad are willing to let their child go to a Lutheran school or a Christian school, so be it, the reformers would say, because they believe that everyone should be able to read the Bible. 
They did not like the Roman Catholic view at that time that only the Roman Catholic higher-ups could read the Bible and it was only in Latin, it wasn't translated in the language of the common man. The reformers said, no, everybody needs to read the Bible so we can test whoever gets behind that pulpit and make sure that he's, he's giving us the true word of God. And uh, because of that, uh, the reformers believed that everyone uh, should be educated and should learn how to read the Bible uh, so that they could think for themselves and uh, test what they heard with the Word of God. The Founding Fathers' view in the 18th century is very similar to the view of the Reformers. Uh, how many people here have read the Constitution? Okay, we've got, we've got a few here. If, uh, if you were uh, not homeschoolers, I can guarantee that the, the number of people raising their hand would be even less. And it's just really, really saddening that the law of the land is no longer, uh, you know, we don't even know what it is. And, uh, uh, but the fact of the matter is, it's a very small document, and the Founding Fathers saw a very limited role. See, the Founding Fathers understood the biblical view of government. The biblical view of government basically is that human life is worth protecting because human life is sacred, because men and women were created in God's image. So human life is worth protecting. But number two, human life needs protecting because man is sinful. He fell in the garden. And so your next door neighbor might do rotten things to you if the boys in blue don't patrol the streets. Okay? So you need human government because man is sinful, but also because human life is sacred and worth protecting. And our founding fathers acknowledged that. The problem that our founding fathers faced was who, you know, what what creatures lead human government? Sinful fallen humans. And so our founding fathers feared that uh, the government leaders, if not held in check, uh, they would abuse the power given to them and they would be a, a worse threat than possibly uh, uh, a pickpocket or a thief or a murderer it would be a worse threat because you know you, if uh, if uh, you know a biker is giving you a hard time, you can call the police. But what do you do if the police are giving you a hard time because they're getting the orders from the government authorities? What do you do with the KGB? I mean, who did, who did the old the people living in the old Soviet Union call when the KGB came knocking on the doors in the middle of the night? Uh, I mean, the only recourse you have there is to, to drop to your knees and pray to the Almighty God because there's no human power you can turn to. So our founding fathers recognized that federal government's power had to be limited. And, uh, and so basically, they, they believed the federal government should have no say in education. You will, you will not find in the Constitution anything giving the federal government any say in the education of children. Then in the Tenth Amendment, which was, you know, the final amendment in the Bill of Rights, which basically, you know, was the, the Constitution pretty much in its original form, uh, the Tenth Amendment basically said any powers not specifically spelled out and given to the federal government in this small thing called the Constitution, those powers automatically fall back to the states and the people respectively. Uh, and so basically what our founding fathers wanted was... Uh, the people to have a say in the education of their children. Okay? 
the, the, the smaller amount of people you get, the smaller geographical area you get, the more say the parents are going to have. And that's what our founding fathers want. In other words, what I'm saying is the Federal Department of Education today is unconstitutional, as are many uh, aspects of the federal government today. Um, in fact, before the, the beginning of this century, uh, except for a time of war, it was uh, very unlikely for an American citizen to really feel the influence of the federal government over his life. Everything was dealt with uh, on the local level. Um, but the federal government should have no say in education. The parents, uh, the churches, local government should decide. In fact, you find the first schools in this country, whether they're universities or grammar schools, were started by Christians. The Bible was one of the normal textbooks for, for children to read. And, and the reason for that goes back to the Reformation, the, the uh, Protestant view that every uh, child uh, should learn how to read so that he can read the Bible. Okay? Um, and so uh, education, for the most part, in American culture was a Christian idea. Um, but uh, the Founding Fathers acknowledged that the federal government uh, would abuse uh, power and would use education to indoctrinate children. So instead of educating children and preparing them for the life that lies ahead and teaching them right from wrong, the government said, hey, wait a minute. We can mold these children and indoctrinate them in political correctness and uh, get them to be basically uh, the slaves of the state. Now that was exactly the view of Karl Marx. He uh, co-authored the Communist Manifesto in the uh, 19th century, I believe it was uh, uh, 1848. Uh, and basically if you read the Communist Manifesto, it's another small document, uh, by the way. Um, but if you read the Communist Manifesto, he argued that it's the state that should not only educate the children, uh, but that should raise the children. He believed, in fact, Plato's views were very similar here. He believed the parents had a detrimental effect on the upbringing of the children. They were a bad influence. And, uh, you know, men and women are, are pretty good at reproducing. The state can't figure out how to... Well, now we're moving in the direction of the state's figuring out how to reproduce human beings. But, but at that time, they couldn't figure out how to do it, so they needed men and women to make babies but then they wanted to take the babies as soon as possible. And you hear that today, you know, they're trying to, uh, they'd like to see uh, little babies in government-run daycares uh, at an earlier and earlier stage in life. And there's a reason for that. And, it's, and believe me, it's not compassion. Um, our founding fathers, you know, recognized that you, you, you cannot have unlimited government power in the hands uh, of the federal government. But Karl Marx's view was that the state should raise and educate the children. He, he pretty much came right out and said that for purposes of indoctrination, for uh, uh, training the children to be the kind of people that the state wants them to be. Uh, Karl Marx called also for the abolition of the family and the abolition of private property. So uh, you could see where his... Uh, uh, educational system uh, was heading. Now John Dewey, we're on page two now in our handouts, John Dewey, 20th century AD, he's uh, oftenly, uh, referred, often referred to as the uh, father of modern education. Okay? The public school system in this country uh, 
probably has not been influenced by any other person uh, as much as John Dewey himself. Um, but uh, he was a signer of the first Humanist Manifesto, it was 1933, another tiny document. By the way, it's really interesting that, you know, great thinkers often write, you know, volumes. Uh, some guys don't even write books, they, they, they just write <coughs> encyclopedia-sized works. Uh, but it seems like whenever you get the documents that really transform the world, they're these tiny little documents, even the 66 books of the Bible. And uh, they don't waste a lot of words and they get right to the point. And so for good or for bad, you find small documents throughout history transforming the, the culture, uh, transforming cultures. But whatever the case, he was a signer of the Humanist Manifesto Number 1. He, it basically espoused atheistic evolution. Okay, that they came up with certain tenets, and uh, number one was that basically there is no God, everything that exists is material, and uh, so it espouses atheistic evolution, and again, John Dewey signed this. It stated that traditional religion and promises of life after death are harmful. Okay? Uh, and the goal was basically, now they don't spell it right out, Second Humanist Manifesto number 2, 1973, spells it out, uh, but if you read real closely the first Humanist Manifesto, it's, it's there. Uh, their, their goal was a one-world socialistic government. And by the way, nowadays we're told that socialism and communism are on two opposite ends of the spectrum. They are not. The difference between socialism and communism is so small that the Soviet Union, or what we call the old Soviet Union, what we call the communist regime, could call themselves socialists. Uh, and in fact, the Soviet Union uh, would use the word communism interchangeably with the word democracy. And they were talking about their classless society, which supposedly the uh, Soviet leaders, once they take over the world, they would uh, eventually give up their power, which uh, is a real wait and see thing. But by the way, too, even if uh, even if you do. Even if you do enter into a classless society and these leaders actually gave up their power, which has never before been done, uh, uh, willingly, you know, sometimes uh, you know King George can be taken down by uh, some radicals like the founding fathers, but uh, but you don't find uh, dictators just giving up their power willingly. But uh, but even if that was the case, and that that does eventually occur, a classless society is not utopia. Karl Marx had no room and his worldview for the fall of mankind, for sinfulness. And so he didn't really, he thought that eventually we would not have a need for government, we'd have a classless society, we'd all share things. By the way, the Puritans actually tried that communal lifestyle and it failed miserably. Because a person wasn't able to enjoy the fruit of their labor, nobody labored. And uh, so they got to, and in Acts chapter 2, people try to make that, uh, interpret that as being communism with the church of sharing what they own with others. That's not communism. If you live in a communistic uh, society, you don't own anything. You can't share. You know, I had that worked, uh, a co-worker once told me, I, she said, uh, I sum up communism in one word, sharing. And I said, well, that's real nice, but Karl Marx summed it up in one phrase, the abolition of private ownership. There's a world of difference between Phil Fernandez sharing with somebody in need and the government taken from Phil Fernandez against Phil Fernandez's will and then sharing with somebody else. And 
And even from the standpoint of helping the poor, it's not practical. If a guy's poor and he needs a dollar, I can give him a dollar. He gets a dollar. Okay? And then I can also decide, hey, maybe he's just lazy. Maybe I would hurt him by giving him a dollar, so I won't give him a dollar. But whatever the case, if I give him a dollar, he gets a dollar. Now, if the government takes a dollar from me, once it goes to government bureaucrats, he's, he's, it'd be real lucky to get 20 cents. In fact, he'd be real lucky to get a dime out of it. So it's not cost-effective. Well, this, all this compassion that our government leaders have for the poor, supposedly, all it's doing is getting them reelected. Because there's a lot of votes there, but in actuality, if you punish the producers and give to the non-producers, that's a perfect formula to, to bankrupt the nation. Okay, it might, might get you reelected, but it'll bankrupt your nation. But anyway, John Dewey's goal was a one-world socialistic government, uh, and he believed that, that the state should use the schools to indoctrinate the children. He emphasized less theoretical training and more practical training. In fact, I, I think it'd be safe to say that when you really read Dewey's views of education, he basically wanted to graduate high school students at the point where they could barely read and write so they'd be very easy to manipulate by the government leaders. At the same time, they would learn a good trade so they'd be a productive member of the socialistic society. Okay, that's the way... Uh, Dewey, uh, Dewey thought, and uh, he's referred to as the father of modern education today. And we see that today, and it's really, really, really unfortunate. Uh, and, and by the way, there, there are, there are very good public school teachers who are either Christian or non-Christian who are really trying to do the best that they can. But nine, ninety-nine percent of the time, the curriculum is coming from and. National Education Association agenda, uh, the, the principles that these good teachers have been taught uh, are basically evil principles set up for the goal of uh, manipulating children and, and detaching them from the views of their parents and, and that type of thing. And uh, so basically uh, what I'm saying is there's a lot of good, I know some really good public school teachers. Uh, Unfortunately, their job is a lot like trying to plug up holes in the Titanic while it's going down. Um, so, uh, you know, for my wife and I, we just thought homeschooling was the best option for us. And uh, so some, every once in a while you'll find Christian and private schools practicing the same principles that the, the public school uses. So, I don't know. I just don't understand why, why this is going on. If it doesn't work for the public schools, it's not going to work for the Christian schools either. Okay, uh, I've got some important quotes. Well, they're not really quotes. There's some articles. I, I write a uh, column on the religion page, a monthly column for the Bremerton Sun. And needless to say, I'm not real popular back home anymore. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but this article, I really didn't title it, Parents' Job to Educate Their Children. Bremerton Sun always changes my titles and it leaves everything else the same. But, but this was a pretty good title. Uh, I'm just going to read the first half of this article so you can... Here, what Gordon Clark had to say, I'm going to just paraphrase a few little quotes of phrases that he used, but I'm just going to paraphrase what he said. In 1935, more than 25 years before prayer was taken out of the public schools, the late Christian thinker Gordon Clark gave a speech stressing the need for Christian education. Clark warned that public education 
in its attempt to be non-Christian would actually become anti-Christian. Clark stated that education is the responsibility of the family and that it is primarily to parents that God has entrusted the children and their upbringing. He added that there are powerful forces at work in the world and in these United States to destroy the family and to make children, yes, and adults too, the creatures of the state. Clark saw the centralization of authority in the public school system leading America down the path toward a di dictatorship that would use its power to destroy the family and to exalt the state. He argued that public education was fast becoming a means of political propaganda. Clark knew that the church and the world have different ideas as to what constitutes a good education. The church believes that education must include moral and spiritual preparation essential to godly living. The world rejects the authority of the God of the Bible and encourages children to accept the new morality, i.e. a sinful lifestyle. Clark also recognized that the state would abuse its power and indoctrinate children, molding them into adults who will, who will gladly and mindlessly accept their servitude before the presence of a totalitarian regime. That was 1935 in America, Gordon Clark said that, so he was way ahead of his time. Another guy that was ahead of his time was C.S. Lewis. I'm going to read to you just uh, a couple pages from uh, my paper that I presented, uh, in fact it was last Saturday, a week ago, uh, at Multnomah for the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, but C.S. Lewis in his prophetic work the Abolition of Man uh, critiqued an English textbook written in the 1940s, this was in Great Britain, which was designed for school children. Lewis found that, that uh, more than English was being taught in this book, for the authors rejected uh, objective truth and traditional values and proclaimed a type of moral relativism. Lewis expressed concern for two reasons. First, the children who read this textbook would be easy prey to its false teachings. Second, this would lead to a culture built on moral relativism and the rejection of objective truth, something that, according to Lewis, has not existed in the history of mankind. Lewis not only re refuted the fallacious views of the authors, but also predicted the future consequences of this type of education. He argued that teaching of this sort would produce a, a race of men without chest, by this he meant, meant men without consciences. According to Lewis, this would mean an entirely new species of man and the abolition of man. Lewis argued that the practical result of such education would be the destruction of the society which accepts it. The rejection of all values leaves man free to recreate himself and his values. When this power is placed into the hands of those who rule, their subjects will be totally at their mercy. Lewis also saw in this rejection of traditional values a new purpose for science. In a sense, science is like magic in that both science and magic represent man's attempted conquest of nature. However, science will become an instrument through which a few hundreds of men will rule billions of men. For in man's conquest of nature, human nature will be the last aspect of nature to surrender to man. Science will be used by future rulers to suppress the freedoms of the masses. Lewis refers to the future rulers as the man-molders of the new age, or the conditioners. It will be the job of the conditioners to produce the rules, not to obey the rules. The conditioners 
Friedrich Nietzsche, by the way, called them the overman or the uh, the supermen, will boldly create the condition, uh, will boldly create the laws the condition must obey. The role of education will become the production of artificial values which will serve the purposes of the purposes of the conditioners. The conditioners, through their Nietzschean will to power and motivated by the thirst to satisfy their own desires, will create their own new values and then force these values on the masses. According to Lewis, the rejection of traditional values and objective truth will lead to the same mentality in future rulers as that of Nazi, uh, the Nazi rulers of Germany. Traditional values will be replaced by the arbitrary wills of the few who rule over the billions. And this will abolish man and bring about the world of post-humanity. Now, we might be thinking, well, you know, these were Christian, great Christian thinkers, and uh, they were really intelligent, but maybe they were just a little biased being, being Christian. So what I want to do right now is give you uh, one quote from 1935. No, from 1972. 37 years after Clark's speech, 1972, Harvard professor Chester M. Pierce, he gave the keynote address to the Association for Childhood Education International. Again, he's a Harvard uh, professor of education, I believe. And so this is what he stated to the uh, Association for Childhood Education International. Every child in America entering school is insane because he comes to school with certain allegiances toward our founding fathers, toward his parents, toward a belief in a supernatural being. It's up to you, teachers, to make all these sick children well by creating the international children of the future. Okay? So, I mean, you, you've got people on both sides, Christians saying, hey, this is going to happen and it's bad, but then you have also uh, professors of education at leading schools like Harvard saying, yeah, this is going to happen, but it's good. Okay? Uh, but the thing is, thinkers on both sides of the issues often agree that it's going to happen. Now, I think that the evangelical Christian church, whom I am a member, uh, I think today is in a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil mode. So, unfortunately, the Francis Shapers of the past, the C.S. Lewis's of the past, they, we, we like to, Christian thinkers like to debate ideas, but we don't like to talk about the consequences of ideas that have won out and won the debates. And uh, we, Western culture has thrown the God of the Bible out the window, and there are some consequences right around the corner. And uh, I, I think we need to fulfill the role of the watchman and sound the trumpet and warn of the impending judgment, uh, unless, of course, Western culture uh, repents. Uh, what's the state of public education today? Uh, I'm just going to throw out some organizations to you. Uh, by the way, there's a book, really good book. I, I enjoyed reading. Uh, I can't. Even, I cannot pronounce the lady's name. She got the two consonants side by side. And there's just no way to pronounce it unless you hear it. But uh, it's only like five letters. But it just. It's just a. Um, but uh, whatever the case, uh, she's got a book, uh, Brave New Schools which is kind of take on uh, Huxley's Brave New World, and she's showing how uh, uh, the schools have really gone a long way to uh, further uh, the uh, anti-Christian agenda and move towards a one-world government. But, uh, but basically, uh, 
some organizations that are influencing public education, even in America today. Uh, UNESCO, I think it's the United Nations uh, Education, Sciences and Cultural Organization. Uh, Julian Huxley, this was his brainchild, and he was the first founder, but basically it's the school board for the world. Now, Julian Huxley was an atheist. Uh, his brother, Albus Huxley, was a pantheist and wrote the book Brave New World. Hey, this stuff's going to come down, big brother and everything, and it's, and it's horrible. Well, Julian Huxley, his older brother, was fighting for that same thing because he thought it was great. So it's pretty interesting. But, but anyway, it's kind of like a school board for the world, and so, uh, and if you think the United Nations really doesn't have an influence over your life, I can remember as a kid, a Roman Catholic kid growing up in New Jersey, uh, taking UNICEF around on Halloween, the UNICEF boxes. So, I mean, the United Nations has a bigger impact on our lives than we realize sometimes. And, uh, but there are kind of sub-branches of UNESCO that kind of have an informal relationship to them. Uh, OBE, Outcome-Based Education, is one of those areas. Now, B.F. Skinner, was a behavioral uh, psychologist, and uh, he believed basically you train human beings like you train dogs. You know, give them a cookie and they'll do what you want to do. He uh, kicked the dog in the, in the back, and the dog won't do whatever it did. And uh, but basically, he believed that all that exists is matter. That we are just physical machines. That we are all our decisions. We really don't have free will. All our choices are predetermined by our genetic code uh, and our environment. And so what he said was, we need to manipulate the genetic code of people. Science is moving in that direction, technology is moving in that direction, and uh, we need to control the environment of people, and we need to, basically he wanted to be one of those man molders, one of those conditioners. In fact, he even in his book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, he slammed C.S. Lewis several times because he knew back in 1947 C.S. Lewis was refuting his views, you know, uh, 35 years before he even came out with them. Uh, but outcome-based education is being implemented today. You, usually it's under the name of Goals 2000 or America, to, I think America 2000 was the former name. They talk about things like a certificate of mastery, so you can't graduate high school and qualify to get a job if you don't meet uh, several standards of these state-run schools. Well, you know, what's to stop them from...